Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canals Centre. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at your museum. Today, you're listening to me, Kathleen Powell, Supervisor of Historical Services and Curator at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canals Centre. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous people for millennia, and we'd like to honor the centuries of Indigenous people who walked on Turtle Island before us. As we move into November, we begin to think about Remembrance Day, poppies, and the service of our veterans past and present. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about how Canada remembers war. Hi everyone, it's Adrian here at the museum. We are so excited to welcome you back to the virtual museum lecture series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre this fall. We had an incredibly fun and successful spring series featuring stories of horses, shipyards, memorials, canal builders, and freedom seekers. Now we're back after a little summer break with new and exciting historical adventures to fill your Tuesday evenings. Join us this fall and mark your calendars for a great lineup of local history lectures you can enjoy from the comfort of your home. September is all about our annual guided spirit walks at Victoria Lawn Cemetery. We'll have historian Adam Montgomery kick off the series on September 15th with a lecture about cemeteries and monuments with a focus on Victoria Lawn Cemetery. Then I'll be here on September 29th with a special behind the scenes look at our virtual presentation of the annual tours through Victoria Lawn featuring stories and memories from the cast and crew of our Guided Spirit Walks. October is just as exciting and will feature another special guest, Natasha Henry, historian and president of the Ontario Black History Society. Natasha will be giving a talk on the history of Ontario's racially segregated schools on October 13th. On October 27th, I'll be back to discuss the somewhat lost and mostly forgotten history of the Third Welland Canal. On November 10th, we'll present our emotional and touching First World War series, Stories from the Front, with stories from our collection about experiences at home and at the front from St. Catharines. On November 24th, I'll be joined by our public programmer, Sarah Nixon, to discuss a report commissioned by the United States Congress Freedmen's Inquiry Commission, written by Samuel Gridley Howe in 1863 on the condition of freedom seekers in Canada. Local interviews with both freedom seekers and recognizable names of the city's established businessmen opens up new histories we aren't used to hearing. And finally, on December 8th, our curator Kathleen Powell will present a talk on local fashion and our new exhibit, Marking Time, which features important moments of life and the textiles that go with them. Join us this fall and mark your calendars for an exciting virtual museum lecture series. 
Register by donation by calling the museum at 905-984-8880 or by emailing the museum at museum at stcatherines.ca. Can you believe it? It's almost that very magical time of year. For hundreds of families in Niagara, the holiday and winter season can be difficult simply due to the lack of winter clothing. We plan to do our bit this year, as in every year, with our annual Mitten Tree Campaign. The annual Mitten Tree Campaign has collected thousands and thousands of new and gently used winter clothing items to be donated to community care and Start Me Up Niagara's Out of the Cold program. The Mitten Tree Campaign begins on December 6th with a virtual event at 10 a.m. Join us on our social media channels for some fun. Then bring your new or gently used winter clothing items to place on or around the mitten tree in the museum's lobby. We are accepting donations until January 3rd. Happy holidays from all of us at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre. episode of Museum Chat Live, I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Tim Cook, who is a historian at the Canadian War Museum and a well-known Canadian author of Canadian history. Tim Cook has written 11 books which have garnered him many awards. These include the J.W. Defoe Prize for At the Sharp End, which he wrote in 2008, and for Vimy, The Battle and the Legend, which was published in 2018. His book, Shock Troops, won the 2009 Charles Taylor Prize for Literary Nonfiction. In 2013, he received the Pierre Burton Award for Popularizing Canadian History. And also, he is the two-time winner of the C.P. Stacey Prize for the Most Distinguished Book in Canadian Military History and a three-time winner of the Ottawa Book Award. For his contributions to Canadian history, he has been named a member of the Royal Society of Canada and the Order of Canada. Dr. Cook lives in Ottawa. Today we're going to talk about his new book, The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. The Second World War shaped modern Canada. It led to the country's emergence of, as a middle power on the world stage, the rise of the welfare state, industrialization, urbanization, and population growth. After the war, Canada increasingly turned towards the United States in matters of trade, security, and popular culture, which then sparked a desire to strengthen Canadian nationalism from the threat of American hegemony. The Fight for History examines how Canadians framed and reframed the war experience over time. Just as the importance of the Battle of Vimy Ridge to Canadians rose, fell, and rose again over a hundred-year period, the meaning of Canada's Second World War followed a similar pattern. But the Second World War's relevance to Canada led to conflict between veterans and others in society, more so than in the previous war, as well as a more rapid diminishment of its significance. By the end of the 20th century, Canada's war effort was depicted as a series of disasters, whether it was the defeats at Hong Kong and Dieppe, or the racially driven policy of the forced relocation of Japanese Canadians, Many historians and much of the media seem to dwell on failure. 
there was little discussion of Canada's crucial role in the Battle of the Atlantic, the air war against Germany, or the success of its armies in Italy. No other allied nation so bizarrely remade its victories into defeats. The fight for history superbly draws a balanced portrait of Canada's part in the global conflict. It is the story of how Canada remembered the war, how we tried to bury it, and how its importance was restored. Thank you so much for joining me for my interview today with Tim Cook. So on to the interview. Welcome, Tim, to our podcast. Uh, it's really great to chat with you again, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's great to be back, I guess I'll say. I've spoken at your museum many times. Uh, this is different for us, but of course, we're in different times now, but uh, thanks for the kind words. Uh, I read your book recently and uh, very much enjoyed the different perspective you've taken on uh, looking at the Second World War. Uh, as a historian, I'm very interested in how memory shapes people's lives and their impressions of past events. Um, but before we get into the way that we remember the Second World War, tell us a little bit about Canada's contribution uh, to the Second World War. Uh, and for our listeners, I recommend that you check out Tim's two-volume history of the Second World War, uh, The Necessary War, and Fight to the Finish. Yeah, well, I wrote those two books. I remember speaking at your museum, and we had a great audience there and a fabulous uh, uh, conversation afterwards. And, you know, when I published those two books, I was struck by the incredible uh, contribution of Canada during the Second World War. Um, 1.1 million Canadians served in uniform, and that's from a, a country of around 11 million, so about Pretty one impressive. in 10. Just an astonishing um, figure if we think about uh, the fact that Canada was geographically distant from this war overseas, but it was a war um, that Canada chose to participate in. I've called it the necessary war. It was a war that had to be fought uh, and had to be won against the, the fascists, against uh, Hitler and the Nazis. And, and Canada's contributions, if we think of the home front, if we think of defending North America, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, um, just in itself the contribution of training 131,000 airmen for the Allied um, uh, assaults on, on um, the fascists, um, our three armed services defending the East Coast and the West Coast, um, involvement in the North as well, and then fighting around the world in the, in the Pacific and the Far East uh, at the Dieppe and Hong Kong, um, uh, the invasion of Sicily, uh, the fighting through Italy, 100,000 Canadians serving in the Italian campaign, just a, an astonishing a figure that I think most Canadians don't know about. The Battle of the Atlantic, six years of, of keeping Britain in the war, it's hard um, to fighting in other campaigns. Yeah, it's just, it, it goes on. Uh, the D-Day landings, Normandy, the liberation of the Dutch, it really incredible contributions. And I, I guess the book itself, The Fight for History, um, one of the questions I had is, you know, why didn't we talk about the Second World War in the same way? Why why isn't it a touchstone for, for Canada like the Great War? Uh, and that's really the underlying question that um, I think runs through the book. It's that examination of why we didn't do a better job in telling our story. 
Yeah. Um, I think that uh, probably this question you just answered, but uh, uh, the book explores the evolution and layering of memory and remembrance of the Second World War. Uh, why did you want to write this book? Why do you think it's, uh, it's important to understand how the war has been remembered uh, over the generations since that conflict ended? Yeah, um, I mean, I wrote a book on Vimy in 2017, Vimy, the Battle and the Legend, which looked at that evolving memory of Vimy and my, my key question in that book was, why does Vimy still resonate with us as Canadians? Why is it on our $20 bill? It's in our passport. Um, I was at Vimy for the 100th anniversary. I was with CBC as their on-air historian. It was an epic event to see 25,000 Canadians there. Um, as we were later to learn, 12,000 um, young people, high school students. Um, but the Second World War didn't resonate in the same way. We, we didn't build an overseas Vimy for the Second World War. I wanted to know why. We didn't have the same memorials in Canada. Um, and we didn't tell that story. So this, this book, The Fight for History, the subtitle matters, uh, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. And I guess to come to your question is, you know, why did we do such a poor job in talking about our history? Why did we forget it in effect? And I think one of, the, um, one of the things that's quite clear is that when our veterans returned home in 1945, in the early part of 1946, as we welcome back eventually a million veterans, they were looking forward. They were looking forward into a prosperous 20th century. Um, Europe was in ruins. The world was, uh, was undergoing the massive collapse of empires. There was the rise of the Cold War. Uh, and yet Canada was relatively wealthy. And, um, uh, you know, the government treated the veterans well. Um, most of them were able to benefit from this, generally not Indigenous uh, Canadian uh, veterans. And I talk about them in the book. And I talk about groups like the Hong Kong veterans who, who suffered um, um, through their long mistreatment in the prisoner of war camps. Uh, but for the most part, veterans were treated well. And they move forward into the universities or retraining. And they... they they started businesses and they built families, the baby boom that emerges. And so we were looking forward, not backwards. And very quickly, uh, I found, and I recount this in the book, very quickly, we, we stopped talking about the war. It didn't resonate in the same way. And I, I, I think that's odd considering, as we had just talked about, the incredible contributions that Canada made from 1939 to 1945. Yeah, I think that is really interesting. And I think it's interesting the evolution that memory had that, or even the way people were talking about the war changed from almost decade to decade uh, between the end of the war and the present, even the present day. I think it's still evolving, um, but even into the present day. Uh, and you mentioned in the introduction of your book, uh, one of these something that relates to that in that that really kind of resonated with me that no other victorious nation underwent this bizarre reframing of the war remaking victories into defeats scorning its war years in a weird display of misplaced self-loathing <laughs> which i think sounds so canadian honestly uh, and i know that this is a big question and it's really basically the whole book but uh, just walk us uh, through a, just a quick look at how the memory of the war has changed over time in canada yeah 
That's the book. I mean, it looks at the arc of the 75 years. And of course, we're in the 75th anniversary now of the end of the war. And of course, we're um, the society that we are a part of and the generations that are uh, that are part of it. They have an impact on remembrance. And you alluded to that. Uh, Historical events don't change. The date of Dieppe doesn't change. And yet how we see it and how we make meaning out of it, that changes generation to generation. Um, society is a society. And, and those kind of complex ideas of the way that history is made and remade, the way it's used and uh, reused and sometimes misused, how it can be weaponized, um, that, that is a fascinating area of study. And, and I've written about that with my Vimy book and, and some of my other uh, books. But I really found it strange, as you alluded to that sentence there, that misplaced self-loathing. Why did Canada turn its incredible contributions for about 50 years into a series of defeats and disgrace? And and, and that's just very strange. As I said, no other country did that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a complex story, and it has to do with telling our story. Um, insofar as our cultural producers didn't create great novels or plays or especially films about the Second World War. Uh, I grew up, I was born in 1971, I grew up watching World War II movies and TV shows, but they were always British and American. And when I taught at Carleton, um, we would watch elements of Saving Private Ryan and students, everyone had seen that or Band of Brothers. Yeah. And they say, what's the Canadian equivalent, Professor Cook? And I say, well, there isn't one. <laughs> and, you know, a generation earlier, The Longest Day, the epic uh, D-Day film, which yep. I talk about in the book, where when it came out in 1962, Canadian veterans flocked to the theaters to see how Canada would be represented for landing on Juno Beach. And of course, as we know, Canada's barely represented there. Um, the failure to build memorials, which we talked about earlier. I've uncovered amazing stories of veterans who were demanding of, of the government, of the state, to build a World War II memorial in Ottawa. And the government of the day in 1945-46 decided against it. And then again, uh, 10 to 15 years later, um, so there is an arc here, and, and really the low point, I think, is in the 1980s and the 1990s, where Canada, by uh, talking about the war, had focused on things like Dieppe, yep. um, which, which really is, was the touchstone. If Vimy, as the great victory of, of the Great War, of the four divisions coming together and storming up Vimy Ridge on the 9th of April, 1917, the Second World War, for much of that time, was Dieppe. Uh, a disaster. And again, that just gives us a bit of a sense of the difference between the two world wars, um, the, the reprehensible treatment of Japanese Canadians and the forced relocation. Um, they, their history had been forgotten and they fought for uh, a, a, an official apology, as we know, but that too shaped the memory of the war, um, as did the Hong Kong veterans who had been treated so poorly, who had to fight for their rights, and the Merchant Navy to fight for veteranhood, T to the point where by the early 1990s, if we were teaching anything about the war, and the book talks a little bit about our failure to teach our history, it was, it was really framing it as defeat and disgrace. Um, and that didn't change until the 50th anniversary, and these anniversaries matter. Yeah. Um, and as you've said, 
you know, we're in the 75th now. The, the 50th really was an important turning point. Yeah, you have, uh, you mentioned your book, uh, Vimy, The Battle and the Legend. And in that book, uh, you explore a lot about history of memory, uh, memory making in Canada. And uh, you actually talk about that in a lot of your books. I know you do talk about that as well in your, your two volume history of the First World War as well. Um, but uh, how would you say, well, maybe you could just walk us through a little bit about how Canada's remembrance of the First World War is different from that of the Second World War for most people who may or may not recognize that a lot of our remembrance is First World War uh, kind of started in the First World War at the end of the First World War. Yeah, well, we're coming up to Remembrance Day, aren't we? And of course, yeah. it was first marked in 1919 as Armistice Day. And the two minutes of silence and John McRae's poem in Flanders Fields and the, the poppy, of course. Um, all of those came out of the, the First World War. And I think as Canadians grappled with and tried to come um, to grips with the, the trauma, traumatic losses, right? The 66,000 killed from the Great War, the conscription debates that tore us apart. We were struggling to make meaning, and we built thousands of memorials across this country. Every city, every town, every village has them. I know when I've been in St. Catharines and, and Niagara region, they, they're, they're there like they are everywhere. Um, and we built our national memorial, and we built Vimy overseas and Beaumont Hamel. And so you can see that memorial landscape and the desire to, well, to use that phrase, lest we forget. Yeah. But that wasn't the same impulse after the Second World War. And I've, I've touched on that a bit, the failure to build our memorials, but it extends to other elements. And um, it, it really was strange that we didn't engage in, in this desire to, to tell our story more effectively um, until, um, until 1994 and 1995. And I see those as really change points and the, the subtitle of you know, the 75 years of forgetting remembering and remaking. Well, that remembering and remaking, I argue, comes in the late 1990s, whereas we've already talked about that absolute low point where we depict the war as a defeat and a disgrace. And then thousands of veterans, they went back um, to France in 1994 to mark the 50th anniversary of D-Day, and then the next year in the Netherlands. And they were greeted as the liberators that they were, these aged warriors, um, cheering crowds um, in France, incredible, um, um, you know, parades for them. And the next year in the Netherlands, even more. The Dutch had never forgotten, even though we as Canadians had forgotten. And, you know, we woke up as Canadians and you can see it. Um, the newspaper accounts of the day, the, the TV coverage, the veterans themselves saying, what has happened here? This is so remarkable. Um, nobody cared about us before. Yeah, I even noticed it last year when people were going overseas, especially um, because the local regiment in St. Catharines was quite involved in the liberation of Holland. Um, there were a lot of local people that went over to, uh, to help to, to mark that anniversary. And uh, it was almost new history people were learning as they're hearing about these uh, these visits to Holland uh, just last year and how shocked they were at how well received Canadians are and how kind of revered the Canadians are when they go over there. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and we had forgotten that for 50 years. 
And it's not that things turned, changed overnight. When the veterans came home, they still had to fight for their history. And the title of the book, The Fight for History, speaks to that. Um, the, the constant battles over the interpretation of our history, the champions who have supported history in dark times, the role of museums and archives and um, historical filmmakers, and I suppose historians as well, and of course of the veterans and their families. And I know that that you have had a chance to speak to so many families and, and they carry that metaphorical torch, John McRae's torch forward. Uh, and over the last 25 years, we've done a better job. The, the numbers on Remembrance Day have come out in greater numbers. Yeah. And um, we've, we have decided as Canadians that this is a part of our history. Um, and, uh, and that too is a, is a part of, of the book. Yeah, I think it's nice that people aren't embarrassed by our history anymore. It almost felt like people were embarrassed in the past about talking about war history in general um, and that people have kind of come past that, which is really great. Uh, yeah. um, and um, I actually was really struck by, um, you know, you talk in the book about the First World War and the John McRae Flanders Fields, you know, passing the torch and that. But then you're also mentioning that you also talk about veterans after of the Second World War talking about, I had wrote it down here, um, but it's not that it wasn't about the veterans to do these, to have this kind of memorializing of of the war, but it's about those who never got to be veterans. And this idea that uh, what was owed the dead and who speaks for them and who owns that history, uh, which is fairly similar kind of theming to what came out of the First World War Remembrance with uh, throwing the torch to the next generation. But for some reason, it didn't resonate as much with this, this generation after the Second World War, which I found really interesting. Yeah. I struggled with that because it, one might even say that our contributions in the Second World War were greater than those in the First World War with terms of commitment and fighting around the world and our industrial production and the list goes on and on. Something about the Great War though shook us to the core as a country and I think where it fell in our, in our evolution 50 years after Confederation, uh, we were fundamentally changed um, with the Great War and that after the Second World War, we are transformed in the same way, and yet we are moving forward into a different time period. And certainly the eruption of the Cold War almost immediately uh, obscures the Second World War. Definitely. And um, the rise in the 60s and 70s of the anti-war movement. Um, again, I'm not condemning these things. This is who we are as a people. I'm trying to explore and explain yeah. why the war, as you nicely put there, was sort of left in the past, but also just seen as a part of our dirty past and as we move yeah. forward into something else. And I think, uh, I would like to think over the last 25 years that we've become more willing to embrace um, the complexity of our shared history. Um, I, I don't want people to think that I'm only calling uh, for heroic history, right? And that it's uh, the Canadians who charge, you know, war is awful in every way. and and when we put men and women in harm's way, when we, when we force them into conflict zones or into war, we better be, know what we're doing and we better understand that the survivors come back with physical wounds and mental wounds we have a better sense of now. Um, and yet that there are, still, there are still cases where we must do that. And I think if ever there was a war, 
um, the Second World War was that necessary war that had to be fought. And um, yeah, definitely. You know, I've been lucky to speak to veterans for 20 to 25 years. And uh, many of them will speak to the folly of war and the futility of war, but not one has ever said to me, well, we, we shouldn't have, we should have sat out the Second World War. That's just, that was just not possible at the time. And I think even today we understand that. And so um, perhaps uh, that's, that's a story that runs through the book as well. The, the, the veterans and their voices. It's important to listen to our eyewitnesses to history, to hear their thoughts. And Kathleen, as you know, from my books, I, I like to ensure that the soldiers and the sailors and the nurses and the airmen, that their voices are heard. And I draw that out through the letters and the diaries that I know you and I have talked about, which are just so powerful to read yeah. those words or to speak to veterans. And I've always felt it's part of my duty as a historian to, to let them speak. I think that that actually makes a difference in uh, as someone who reads a lot of history, but also someone who tries to encourage everybody else to read history as well, uh, is the, uh, uh, and even I know you do the same at the War Museum, but at our museum when I'm developing exhibits and trying to, uh, to tell a story about our, our history, trying to tell it through the eyes of people that they can relate to uh, really makes a huge difference to kind of bring people into the into the story and I think that's really important and I think that you know the way history is written even in my lifetime I I know things have changed the way history was written from you know when I was in university in the 90s <laughs> to <laughs> to today even I noticed the difference and that there's a lot more of a, a personal touch to a lot of histories now. And I think that that probably helps to help people remember, uh, especially remember war, because most people haven't been in the military and can't say that they can personally connect to that story as easily. And to have, you know, to put a, a human touch on it, I think is really, um, really important uh, to. Yeah, I've it. always felt that that uh, that social military history that we as you know, I spend a lot of time in the archives looking through the official records and the war diaries and the operational reports and uh, medical uh, returns and logistical records. It's important to understand that, but they're very bloodless records. They, they rarely talk about people and to understand the people, it, it has to come from those who served and, <laughs> and uh, the, the incredible numbers of Canadians who served in the two world wars, 620,000 in the Great War, 1.1 million in the Second World War, they wrote an enormous number of letters and diaries and they reflected on their service years later with memoirs. And more recently, they have written about their experiences in published and unpublished manuscripts. And you and I have talked about this, the, the power of those words. And as archivists, as curators, as historians, um, every single one of them speaks to me as I know they do to you because every story is different. And um, I think it's our job as, as curators or as historians to, to make those connections, as you've nicely said, um, so that people in the present can understand the past. And, and often I think we, we, find, um, we find in this day and age, a, a very quick judgment of people in the past who, who of course didn't think like us, who often didn't pass through the rights revolution and we're quick to condemn them for not thinking like we do, if it's 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 150 years ago. 
And one of the things that I have always felt is that one of the key jobs of the historian is to understand the past in the context of the past. Right. You know, what did people know, but what could they also have known uh, in a realistic sense? And uh, hindsight is, is a tool that we get to use as historians to make sense of the past, but we shouldn't hold those in the past accountable to our own hindsight. <laughs> they did not ever have such clarity. And that's worth remembering, I think, in whatever, whatever context or endeavor we have of trying to make sense of the past through our historical writing or through exhibitions or through a classroom assignment to try to uh, really understand the, the so society which spawned these people, which shaped their education and their outlook on life and their, their willingness to engage in whatever that action is. And I I hope I bring that to my, my books when, when I look at something in, in a more narrow sense, be it the Second World War or the Great War or the veterans' experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, you talk a lot about popular culture in your book and uh, the role that popular culture plays in um, how people see uh, conflict um, at different times. And, uh, um, you know, popular culture can include literature, film, and poetry, um, and specifically one thing that you do talk a lot about is the movie The Valor and the Horror, or the film series The Valor and the Horror, which came out, uh, um, I can't remember, I didn't write the year down, I'm sorry. Um, 1992. There you go, 1992. I actually remember The Valor and the Horror when it came out, <laughs> and the controversy that it created at the time, um, and uh, so can you talk a little bit about how uh, the framing of the war in that film impacted uh, not just the memory of the war, but permeated historical writing and learning, uh, veterans affairs, government support of war histories, uh, probably government support of museums as well. Um, how just like one phenomenon in popular culture can have such an impact on so many things. Yeah. I to come back to your, your question of popular culture, that, that's an important way to understand how people make sense of, of a historical event. In this case, we'll just keep it to the Second World War. And um, one of my first books, my doctoral thesis, Cleo's Warriors, looked at the writing of military history in Canada. And I, I dove really deep there. And, and that's, that's a book that looks at the creation of memory and through history. But of course, I, I realized that you know, one history book, unless you're Pierre Burton, really isn't going to reach a lot of people. I like to think I have a, a wider audience than most, but even then, one CBC television series will reach uh, hundreds of times more people, right? And even that's uh, his Heritage Moments as a good example. Tremendous impact and well done to Historica Dominion Institute. Um, an exhibition, and one of the things I love about being a historian at the War Museum is when I do an exhibition, it you know, it'll be we reach 100,000 people. Or if we do a digital product, or even what we're doing right now, you have a chance to reach all kinds of people who wouldn't normally walk through the door or pick up a book. And I believe all those things are important, and I embrace all of them. Um, that doesn't mean they're all equal, though. And I think The Valor and the Horror uh, in 1992, the three-part series, was really a low point. And I, if we remember to what I was just speaking about 10, 15 minutes ago, that that arc of defeat and disgrace, the absolute low point is the valor and the horror where uh, the filmmakers focused on um, really three, three failures in the war on, on the Hong Kong force, 
which was not a terrible film. It was actually fairly well done. Um, but in, in Normandy, they focused on the Battle of Viria Ridge in 25 July 1944. It's about the only defeat there in a sea of victory, of grinding victories, of D-Day, of holding off the 12th SS in the first week of battle and moving forward and fighting through Khan. And yet they focused on the one defeat. And they also focused on Bomber Command, which they really applied presentist views of bombing cities and civilians from the 1990s and, and accused the, the bomber crews almost of war crimes. Um, and I won't go into the full details. There's a great book that your listeners may want to pick up, uh, The Fight for History, <laughs> to find more. Um, but, you know, that low point propelled the veterans forward and they realized they had to fight for their own history. They had to uh, be more involved in the, the shaping of the contours of memory. And that led to um, veterans becoming a much more, uh, I suppose, I, I think I called it in one of my other books, a sort of militarized gray power that many of the veterans had retired at that point, and yet they were young enough to still wield influence. And they did. And we we see that through veterans who themselves raised the money for the Juno Beach Center, which opened in 2003, an astonishing, astonishing um, building, which uh, if you think about it, isn't it crazy that it took us 60 years to, to mark what we did on Juno Beach? And even then it was only the veterans yeah. who did it. It wasn't an official creation of a memorial at Juno Beach. It was no. a, a, a group who was interested in this. That's right. They felt its yeah. importance. That's right. In the war museum where, where I work, uh, veterans played a key role in raising money for that and being involved in that. Um, there were also controversies and, and veterans have fought for their history. The damage from um, the Valor and the Horror, especially the Bomber Command uh, uh, um, episode, which so badly hurt the veterans as they were, uh, they saw their comrades who flew in Bomber Command being accused of war criminal, uh, of being uh, war criminals, really, uh, or being accused of being naive dupes who didn't understand what they were doing. Um, and that, that played out at the War Museum, too, where we had a Bomber Command exhi uh, permanent exhibition that some veterans objected to. Uh, it was it was a difficult moment at the war museum, and yet we we got past that, um, and but we understood that that the hurt from the decades the decades of neglect um, had played out in 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 many areas, and I think um, one of the key things that I've seen over the last twenty five years. Um, are veterans more willing to talk about their own stories, to address the silences? And that too is a part of the fight for history and passing it on to the next generation, all of which I think is important. And yet, sadly, as we know, our veterans now are about 95 years yeah. of age or older, and we're down to about 30,000 or fewer. So we are, we are moving forward into a period where we will no longer have um, these eyewitnesses to history, these veterans. And uh, I address that in the book. I talk about um, what that may mean for us as a society, but I, I think it's something that we need to reflect upon. And uh, perhaps as we come up to Remembrance Day this, this year, which will be very different than others in the past, yeah. maybe a time to, to uh, think about and reflect upon that service and sacrifice and uh, to bear witness to 
those veterans who have passed away, uh, those who never emerged from the war, those young men who never had a chance to grow up, and all the other veterans and service personnel uh, in Canada who, who continue to, uh, um, in some cases, serve the country and, and to, to be away from their families uh, and others who are veterans and, and are engaging uh, in the life after service. All are worthy of, of discussion and remembrance and discussion and commemoration, um, especially on November 11th, Remembrance Day, but I would hope in other parts of the year as well. And, and maybe my book will help to uh, propel that conversation forward. Yeah, I think uh, it's a really uh, great book from that perspective. I think, you know, if people have read the traditional histories of the First or the Second World War. This is a really interesting perspective on taking a look at that, uh, you know, where that conflict has taken us into the modern day. Uh, just about my last kind of question, and it's really because I, as a museum curator, I was really interested in the sections of the book about the development of the Canadian War Museum. <laughs> and uh, I remember visiting the War Museum when it was in the old, uh, the old Mint building down uh, by the Parliament buildings. And, uh, and now, of course, I've been to the new museum a, a bunch of times uh, since it's opened. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, the development of the War Museum and then um, the perception that a Canadian War Museum plays, or not the perception, but the role that a Canadian War Museum plays in telling our, our history and our wartime history. Yeah. Well, I was very lucky to be one of the historians who was involved in that project. I was the curator for the First World War Gallery, um, but I was I was part of the small team, and it was a small team that that redeveloped the War Museum. Of course, as you mentioned, there was the old War Museum uh, on Sussex, the great castle there that I, I grew up in Ottawa, so I used to go there. I loved it, uh, but very little changed over the years, and the the number of people who attended it uh, steadily declined over the years. Um, and it was the veterans and, and the fight by veterans for a new museum that, that really um, was the driving force for the creation of the new Canadian War Museum. And I talk about that in the book. And the veterans understood that they needed um, a, a place, a museum to tell these stories or, or, or they would be forgotten as they had been forgotten. And so, uh, veterans were not directly involved in the in the content of the museum that was left to the historians and curators as I think it had to be because the War Museum is not part of Veterans Affairs or D&D or anything yeah. it's a crown corporation and yet I'm very proud of that I'm, I'm obviously a little biased <laughs> but uh, we have had uh, since we opened in 2005 uh, millions and millions and millions of visitors uh, and it's one of the the highlights of the cultural attractions in Ottawa now. And I think it is a very fine history museum with thousands of artifacts and works of art and reconstructed spaces and, uh, you know, the smallest artifacts that have powerful stories to, uh, to large main battle tanks and everything in between. And um, it really is a tremendous place for me to work. And I think if people want to know my approach to history, um, one needs to know that I'm a public historian, that I see myself as a public historian. I have a PhD in history. I have written many, many academic articles over the years. I've, I've spoken and given academic papers. 
And yet it's the public history side, that desire to share these stories, I think, that really defines my work. And I think um, this latest book, The Fight for History, is a part of that. Um, of, of Again, trying to do what we've talked about, Kathleen, about the engagement with our past, with our stories, the need to tell the stories and to share them with the next generation, to do so critically, to, to reflect upon our, our past, the, both the good and the ill, and yet um, perhaps the biggest fight, um, the biggest fight, I think, is the fight for, against apathy, yeah. the fight against historical forgetting. The fight, uh, the fight that must continue on. And um, I hope if there's a message that that is one that readers will take away from the book. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, I, I totally agree with you that uh, trying to find a way to make uh, the public, general public, interested in history is really the whole, the whole point in my mind. So I'm totally with you. I'm drinking the same Kool-Aid as you are uh, on the public history side of things. And, uh, uh, you know, you can take things that might seem like a pretty boring document to read, like, say, someone's attestation paper, until you read, you know, their height and this color of their hair and that they had a tattoo and it just brings it right back to a real human side of things. And uh, I think that hopefully it's uh, people will get that just in general that, you know, they can find something appealing in, in most histories. <laughs> uh, but uh, um I'm sure that people are going to go out and buy this book <laughs> in droves. Thank I you. hope it's already doing well since it's been out since the beginning of September. But uh, um, I really, really appreciate you um, taking the time to join me today for this interview. And uh, uh, for my for our listeners out there, I encourage you to go out and uh, and pick up this uh, the book, The Fight for History, and all of Tim's books actually because they're all really great. Um, all kinds of different history of uh, Canada's uh, war story and more. And uh, we will have a link to where you can find more information about the book uh, in the, the uh, blog post that goes with this podcast. So uh, listeners can find it there as well. And so Tim, thank you very much and uh, uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your week. And uh, uh, we will talk to you again very soon, I hope. Thank you so much. it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. Thank you so much to Dr. Tim Cook for joining me today and talking with us about Canada's history and remembrance. If you want to share your connection to the Second World War, please do so on our blog or connect with us on one of our social media channels. You can comment on our blog or connect with us on Facebook at St. Catharines Museum or on Twitter at at STC Museum. Make sure to subscribe to Museum Chat Live and the museum's other podcast, One Hour in the Past, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.